0: Our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. During the time Herod ruled Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He belonged to Abijah's group. Zechariah's wife came from the family of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth truly did what God said was good they did everything the Lord commanded and told people to do. They were without fault in keeping his law. But Zachariah and Elizabeth had no children. Elizabeth could not have a baby, and both of them were very old. Zachariah was serving as a priest before God for his group. It was his group's time to serve. According to the custom of the priests, he was chosen to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. There were a great many people outside praying at the time the incense was offered. Then, on the right side of the incense table, an angel of the Lord came and stood before Zechariah. When he saw the angel, Zechariah was confused and frightened. But the angel said to him, Zachariah, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard by God. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give birth to a son. You will name him John. You will be very happy. Many people will be happy because of his birth. John will be a great man for the Lord. He will never drink wine or beer. Even at the time John is born, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will help many people of Israel return to the Lord, their God. He himself will go first before the Lord. John will be powerful in spirit, like Elijah. He will make peace between fathers and their children. He will bring those who are not obeying God back to the right way of thinking. He will make people ready for the coming of the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I know that what you say is true? I am an old man, and my wife is old, too. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand before God. God sent me to talk to you and tell you this good news. Now listen. You will not be able to talk until the day these things happen. You will lose your speech because you did not believe what I told you. But these things will really happen. Outside, the people were still watching for Zechariah. They were surprised that he was staying so long in the temple. Then Zechariah came outside, but he could not speak to them. So they knew that he had seen a vision in the temple. Zechariah could not speak, he could only make signs to them. When his time of service as a priest was finished, He went home. Later, Zachariah's wife Elizabeth became pregnant. She did not go out of her house for five months. Elizabeth said, look what the Lord has done for me. My people were ashamed of me, but now the Lord has taken away that shame. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. We're glad, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to enter into this season, to remember the stories that usher us into the amazing thing that happened when you, God, became human. Will you speak to your people now? Amen. Amen. So was God angry with us? Is that why this pandemic is, is happening? In the Old Testament, in a passage that we've been reflecting upon recently, Exodus 34, um, God feels a need to explain and describe who he really is. He's just gotten angry. And... Um, He wants people to know that this isn't what he normally does, that he's, in fact, slow to anger. And so he, um, just to go back again to review why he was angry, he had just made a covenant with his people. It was like a marriage covenant. And one of the agreements is that they wouldn't worship other gods or make any kind of god. It's the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up in the mountain to receive more instructions. And while he's there, The people have Aaron, Moses' brother, make a god, a golden calf, and they worship that calf. And God gets angry. It's only the second time in the Bible to this point that God gets angry. The first time was with Moses, when five times Moses kept coming up with excuses as to why he couldn't be the person that God would use to lead the people out of Egypt. And finally, God got angry, but even then, he didn't do anything against Moses. He just accommodated Moses' concerns. The last concern was that he'd become tongue-tied when he stood before Pharaoh. And God says, okay, your brother's on his way now. He'll do the speaking for you. So even then, he didn't judge Moses. But yeah, he got angry, very angry, when the people whored after other gods, when they broke the covenant, the marriage vow. But in this passage, God wants to make clear who he really is. And so there's five qualities that he uses to describe himself then the Lord or Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name Yahweh He wants to make it clear that what he's about to say is true of him and him alone there's no God like him and so he passes in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh Yahweh the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness. Those are the five qualities. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and faithfulness. And then there's a bit of commentary as to how all of that plays out. And forgiving wickedness, not just when we make mistakes, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Nothing said here about anger. You know, a parent is at their best when they discipline without anger. And and the whole point here is that God is determined to see this whole covenant and this whole project to be a light to the nations through to the very end, through thousands of generations. But he also has to factor in that sometimes there's going to be hiccups and sometimes the people are going to stray badly. And so he's going to have to discipline them. And third or fourth is a Hebrew idiom for as long as it takes, as long as it takes to get things back on track again. But the five core qualities are compassion, first of all, a word that's connected to the Hebrew word rakem or womb, it's this deep, deep maternal love that God has for his people and ultimately all people. And then there's graciousness, which is more objective. It's objectively choosing to show favor to people, sometimes because of their positive qualities. We're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth were good people they were blameless in relationship to the law. And sometimes in spite of who we are, like in the case of Jacob, for example, it's more objective. Elizabeth, at the end of our reading, talks about God's graciousness. She's just so grateful for the graciousness that God has shown them in giving them a child in their old age. And then we come to being slow to anger. Now, the Hebrew words here are kind of interesting. Um, Actually, two words are used, and the the words are nose, and long. And so literally, it's to be long-nosed. And uh, quite often, another two words are used whenever God's anger is described. And it's the words heat and nose. And so the idea here, the metaphor here, is when we get angry, our nose gets hot. And, And when it talks about God having a long nose, what it means is that it takes a long time for that heat to get to the end of the nose <laughs> it takes a very long time with god so you know i'm not suggesting that you imagine god with a long nose i don't find that especially appealing but that's the metaphor behind this picture um, that god is long nose it takes him a long time to get angry and the story up to this point validates that again he's only he's only recorded as being angry twice through all the horrific stuff that's happened so far in scripture But actually, the biblical people, the Israelites, as well as the biblical writers, were very glad that God got angry because it indicated that he cared. He cares when people are abused. He cares about injustice. He cares when there's cruelty, when tyrants oppress their people. And sometimes it gets very concrete. One of the specifics that's often mentioned is the plight of the orphan and the widow. They didn't have the safety net in, in that day as, as they often have today. And if people didn't care for them or if unjust judges or kings exploited them, he was angry. That's a good thing. We want a God who cares About us, cares about our suffering, and cares about injustice. That was something that the Hebrew people celebrated. There's a a Jewish scholar by the name of Abraham Heschel, and uh, I don't think there's very many seminary students that don't end up reading his books, The Prophets. They're just really quite amazing. I think they're about 50, 60 years old. I, I found my copy, and it was 350. Not very many theological books you get for 350 these days. But I decided to look up what what Heschel has to say about the wrath of God and I wasn't disappointed. He says, there is an evil which most of us condone and are guilty of, indifference to evil. We remain neutral, impartial and not easily moved by the wrongs done to other people. Indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. It is more universal more contagious, and more dangerous. He suggests that human beings' response to injustice is a poor analogy for for God's justice. For us, the exploitation of the poor is a misdemeanor. For God, it's a disaster. The difference between God's anger and our anger is that our anger tends to just sort of take us over or or come over us It's something often beyond our control but for God it's a choice it's apt it's appropriate and it's measured it's both objective and subjective when we get angry we tend to be blinded by our anger when God gets angry it's because he sees clearly what's going on. And the thing is about God's anger is that there's always a call in his anger. It's not, it's not primarily to condemn, although he does want to call a spade a spade so we know what sin really is and what's hurting us. Its primary purpose is to call, to call us back, to call us to a new way, his way, and for us, the way of Jesus, And so, um, you know, I I think of uh, that that verse in Ezekiel. Um, Do I take delight in the death of the wicked? Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God doesn't want to punish. He doesn't find satisfaction in punishing people. He wants them to come back. TO REPENT, WHICH MEANS TO TURN AROUND AGAIN. And SO GOD'S ANGER ALWAYS CONTAINS A CALL. WE'VE GOT THIS HUGE CHUNK OF SCRIPTURE CALLED, you know, that, THAT INVOLVED THE PROPHETS, ISAIAH, JEREMIAH, EZEKIEL, DANIEL. AND THEY'RE A VERY UNIQUE BODY OF LITERATURE. IN FACT, THEY ARE ENTIRELY UNIQUE IN ALL OF ANCIENT LITERATURE, WHICH IS WHY ABRAHAM Heschel SPENDS SO MUCH TIME TALKING ABOUT THEM. AND YES, GOD IS SOMETIMES ANGRY But the reason he doesn't do anything, at least he's slow to do something, is because he wants his people to come back. There's always a call in his anger. His anger is also temporary. The psalmist says in chapter 30, verse 5, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. And then there's human anger. Anger. And that's pretty difficult for us to navigate. We're made in the image of God. And yes, uh, even though God is slow to angry, he does get angry um, and we get angry. Dallas Willard, one of the most important writers on Christian spirituality in the last century, suggested in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that, that anger is human beings' biggest problem. And Jesus seems to... Himself suggests that by addressing anger as the very first specific issue in the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout the sermon, he talks about violence. He talks about wanting to pay people back, all the things that can be the result of anger. So he may be onto something. Heschel suggests that when we are angry, we come very, very close to evil. It's not the same thing. And again, we need anger sometimes to alert us to evil. Like fire, it can be a blessing or it can be fatal. It sets off deadly explosions, and yet the absence of anger can make us insensitive to wickedness and evil. And there aren't very many of us that do it well. I know I don't do it very well. Either we don't do it at all, or we do it poorly. And we need to be careful of putting God in either of those camps, thinking, oh, he's just a nice, nice old man up in in, in the clouds of heaven. No, he, he gets upset about injustice, but he also does it well, and he's slow to anger. He's long of nose when it comes to anger. It's a sign that he cares. I'm going to suggest one other thing this morning. It's a sign that he's up to something. When God gets really angry, he's up to something. It's time for a new start. It's time for a new beginning. So is God angry with us? Is this pandemic a sign that God is angry with us? Let's think for a moment. About, um, ABOUT OUR GOSPEL READING and, AND THE ANGEL GABRIEL AND HIS RESPONSE AND REACTION TO Zechariah WHEN ZACHARIAH SAYS, are, ARE YOU SURE? I MEAN, WE'RE OLD. And, AND GABRIEL RESPONDS BY SAYING, BECAUSE, BECAUSE YOU DIDN'T BELIEVE, um, YOU WON'T BE ABLE TO SPEAK UNTIL THE BABY IS BORN. SO WAS GABRIEL ANGRY. Maybe, I don't know. It doesn't say anything about his being angry. But my guess is that that consequence is meant not to punish, but to help Zechariah prepare, to prepare to play his part in this great event that is a part of the even greater event of the birth of God, the birth of Jesus into this world. In many ways, Zechariah's response is surprising. Um, He's a priest. Um, He knows the scriptures. He knows how the scriptures end at the end of Malachi. There's all sorts of hyperlinks in what, um, what Gabriel is saying to him. Let me just read it again. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John when you give when you give even an unborn child a name it, it makes it more real right this is real he will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice of his birth because of his birth in other words we're not you're just not a functionary we're not just here you know i'm just not using you to bring john into this world i'm here and an answer to your prayers I want you to enjoy this child, this child to bring you so much pleasure and joy in your old age. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. Kind of reminds us of Samson. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Now that's something. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This mention of Elijah turning the hearts of the parents to their children is an exact, almost an exact quote from the very last verse of the Old Testament. So, Zechariah has every reason to connect the dots to see how the stars are lining up. And he lived at a time when many people, almost most people were thinking that God was about to do a new thing. The prophecies of the Old Testament um, pointed to a time and, and, and a period and a length of time that seemed to that within about a hundred year window, the Messiah would come. And they're coming to the end of that time. People are expecting any day now, maybe any Passover now, that the Messiah is going to come. And so all of that, the expectation, not to mention where Zechariah is when he receives this visitation from Gabriel he's in the temple and Jewish people believe that the temple was the closest thing to heaven maybe you've heard of thin places it was the thinnest place between heaven and earth so if you're gonna have a a vision or if you're gonna be visited by an angel this would be a logical place for that to happen lots of reasons Um, You know, for for Zachariah to give a fist pump, you know, you say, yes, but what does he say? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. This is a son of Abraham. What happened then? Abraham was 100. Sarah was 99 when they gave birth to a child. So why such a, a lukewarm response? I have to wonder if, if maybe Zechariah had lived with disappointment for too long. The disappointment of, of not having a child. The disappointment of not having grandchildren. And then the shame they were good people, but neighbors couldn't help but wonder you know, why Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't have children. In that day and age, it was a shame, a sign of shame. And that's why Elizabeth says in our reading, God has removed my shame. And then we prayed, we prayed, and nothing happened. Maybe when you live with disappointment for that long, it's hard hard to have hope it's hard to believe even when hope is staring you in the face maybe some of us can relate maybe disappointment over unfulfilled dreams the disappointment of losses disappointment in god And maybe, you know, the disappointment about, you know, obviously this isn't going to be a normal Christmas. That That can keep us from being ready for what's possible. And so is God angry with us? You know, I could see why he would be. May I look at the state of our country right now? You know, God loves unity, and unity is the last thing that would characterize our country right now. And not just our country, but the church. So much disunity. In fact, even our own denomination, we're kind of in that suspended place right now of not knowing what's going to happen because of the cancellation of our last general synod. What's, we know our church isn't going to be the same. Will we survive because of deep differences? So I can see why God would be angry. But whether he is or not, even if he's angry, it's because he cares. And it's because he's up to something. And that's what I'd like to suggest that we believe, that God is up to something. We lit the hope candle. This is, uh, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and the first Sunday is the Sunday of hope. Well, I'd like to, uh, to suggest a few things this morning for us to ponder, to think about in relationship to um, our getting ready for this new thing that God may want to do. You have to help me, Dave. One more time. There you go. And one more time. Yeah, keep going. There we are. Okay. So once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, We may never have an advent like this again. Zechariah was probably experiencing a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. To serve in the temple he there were lots of families of priests there were lots of families of levites that also assisted in the worship life of the church and you know it's, it's likely that this was the only time in his life when he was going to have this opportunity to offer incense and in that part of the temple where only the priests could go and you know sometimes uh i hear people say i've said it during the christmas season you know things are so busy it's so busy this time of the year I, you know, it's, it's like we, we forget the reason for the season. I wish I had more time to, to think about what all this is about. Oh, well, my sisters and brothers, we have the time. We may never have an opportunity like this again. The solitude, the silence, relatively speaking. We have the opportunity to think about what all this is about. And that may be important for preparing for what's next. Um, the people of Israel are in the desert, and a part of that is they're preparing for what's next, preparing for the new thing that God has planned for them in the land of Canaan. Even Jesus, after 30 years of, of well, we don't know very much about what he did, but I'm sure he was preparing for his ministry, even then he spent 40 days before, just before beginning his ministry 40 days in silence, and solitude, preparing for what was ahead, for the new thing that God was about to do and the part that he would have to play in that new thing. And so um, let's not be disappointed, or if we are disappointed, that's okay. Even if we are disop- disappointed, let's at least wonder if maybe God is wanting to do something. And maybe this is actually an opportunity, if we can just push to the side a little bit of our disappointment, take advantage of this opportunity to be in God's presence. And actually to do what Mary did. You know, Mary um, pondered these things in her heart after Jesus was born. And, of course, what this whole season is about is the incarnation, God becoming flesh. In the, in the Western church, we tend to focus on the crucifixion of Jesus. In the Eastern church, Eastern Europe, and um, they tend to focus a little bit more on the incarnation of Jesus. The incredible miracle and wonder and mystery of God becoming flesh. Every year my wife asked me, what well, do you want me to put up the Christmas tree this year? And she wondered about this year in particular. And I said, yes, I'd love it. I do do the lights, but she does everything else. And I think it's in part because when that Christmas tree goes up, there's this sense of mystery. I'm not sure why it helps me think about the incarnation, the mystery of God becoming flesh. But I love this reminder that this happened and it's something to be pondered not necessarily figured out And as I think about the future of the church and I believe there is a future church I believe there's a lot of upheaval happening in the world and in the church today because God is up to something he he has something new in mind and I'm not sure how long it's gonna take but I believe it's gonna happen and, and a part of that is our spending a little less time trying to figure everything out and then getting upset with people who don't see things the same way in other words i envision a church where we don't get so bent out of shape because everyone doesn't believe exactly the same thing we believe and we know we're right and so that means they must be wrong The incarnation of Jesus, this becoming human, that's something to be just pondered, lived with. And so when Jesus began his ministry, he didn't didn't write books. He didn't sequester himself for three years and write a bunch of books and then go up on the cross and die for our sins. Sometimes, Sometimes I think we wished he would have done that, you know, wrote about all the difficult topics that we debate. Wouldn't it have been wonderful? You know, his writing out in great detail the answers to all of our questions. But he didn't. He told stories. Stories that most of the time were kind of up in the air as to what they meant. Even when he gave a, a meaning, you kind of had the sense, well, yeah, that does mean that, but I guess it, I'm guessing it means more than that too. Stories that were supposed to be pondered where people could get together as many of us have done in Bible studies or or recently some of us in morning gatherings and Zoom, and we can bring different perspectives. We don't have to defend our own viewpoint. And maybe that's what's gotten us into so much trouble, why we have the disunity, at least a part of the reason for the disunity, that has to really grieve God, if not make him angry. So I'm envisioning a church. Oh, yeah, we want to use our minds. God has given us these minds. That's good. We want to try to figure things out, but also at the end of the day to say, and this is ultimately a mystery, and I'd like to hear from you your perspective. And you're one of the greatest mysteries. I hope you'll really ponder this mystery this Advent. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. in Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 The apostle Paul writes To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory Now that's something to ponder to wonder what that means and to actually live with that knowledge as we go about our lives this Advent. Bringing Jesus to where we live, work, play, and learn. I envision that the church of the future while we will be gathering, and that's that's important. In fact, the word church literally means gathering. We're also going to be much more equipping each other to scatter, to wherever we live, work, play, and learn, where we be Jesus and where we bring Jesus. So what do we do when we get there? How do we be Jesus and bring Jesus? Well, over the last while I've been thinking a lot about the simplicity of the words love. Your neighbor as yourself. Jesus talked about that fulfilling the entire law alongside loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he even suggested that you're not loving God if you don't love your neighbor as yourself. When you think about how Jesus lived, that's how he lived. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of John 1, talks about God moving into the neighborhood. God doesn't move into the neighborhood without wanting to be a good neighbor. And we see this in Jesus, don't we? Every day, he tries to be a good neighbor. You know, could it be that simple? At the very least, that's a good place to start. Just being a good neighbor. Wherever we live, work, play, and learn. How can I be a good neighbor today? How can I love others as I love myself? So I think that's also a part of the church that God is forming, that God has in his mind, that people are going to serve one another as he has served us, loving their neighbor as they love themselves. That's a high calling. That's pretty challenging to love my neighbor as myself. And then I believe it's going to be a Magnificat church. Um, Not magnificent, necessarily. It's not going to be very impressive in terms of its amazing buildings, but a Magnificat church. The Magnificat is what we call what Mary said when she visited her cousin Elizabeth after Mary herself was, was pregnant. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, for her. She's out in, you know, Hicktown, and she's just this humble woman. Why is this happening to me? It's God's grace, God's favor. His mercy extends to those who fear him, no matter who they are, where they are, what their status in life, from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Hmm, I wonder if that's a part of what's happening today. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. A couple weeks ago, a Reformed Church pastor wrote an article about the church of the future. I think everyone's wondering what it's going to look like. And he suggested, based upon a a passage in Jeremiah, that the church of the future is going to be much more focused on people in the margins. Um, And that the people in the margins are going to be brought into the main page. In other words, the, future, the church of the future is not going to focus on old white guys like me. And of course, the demographic in this country is moving in a direction that's almost inexorable. The church of Jesus Christ has to embrace this changing demographic if it wants to be available. And that's a good thing, because the church of Jesus Christ is always meant to be a church for people of all nations. someone asked Jesus, so who is my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of that good Samaritan, a person who didn't have all his theological eyes dotted and T's crossed, but saw a person at the side of the road who was suffering. Didn't care if it was a Jew. Didn't care who he was. All he knew was that he was suffering. That that person needed a neighbor. And so as we think about being Christ wherever we live, work, play, and learn, um, we're gonna be on the lookout for um, the odd person out. The person who doesn't seem to fit in. The person who's suffering. And we're gonna be willing to get involved. You never know where that's gonna end. And we're willing to go outside the circle of those, you know, who are where we live work play and learn as god leads us and as god calls us i think the church of the future is going to involve reaching out to those neighbors outside our circle of acquaintances and our families but the thing is there are people who who are hurting who are feeling shame who are struggling right in those places Right, right in our families, right in our workplaces, right on those ball teams and certainly in those schools from everything that I've heard about college campuses as well as high schools and middle schools these days. We're going to be a good neighbor. We're going to bring people in who are on the margins. We're going to notice them. Make them front and center. And then finally, in addition to being a Magnificat church, help me out, Dave, we're going to be a hopeful church. And I suggest that that begin now. I know I can become very despondent about what's happening in our country. I can become very despairing about what's happening in the church. I can become quite cynical But I don't think that's the response that is called for from a disciple of Jesus. I think he wants us to be hopeful. Remember, even if God is angry, that's a good thing. It's because because he cares and he has something up his sleeve. There's a new thing that he wants to do. And so what if we were to look at whatever is happening today as birth pains? Paul uses that analogy. What if we were to view what's happening with people today as a sign that God wants to do something new and the thing is you know our disappointment and cynicism can blind us to what God is already doing I think he is already doing these things if you're looking um do not remember the former things says God to his prophet Isaiah and do not Do not focus on the things of old, for I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And and our despair and our anger and frustration and disappointment may blind us to what God is already beginning to do. I see him doing it here in this church. One thing that also may get in the way is our clinging to the past. One thing I do know about the future is that it's not going to bring us back. It's going to, you know, going forward really means going forward. And it's going to be different. It's going to be different than the mainline church or the evangelical church or the Pentecostal church or the Episcopal church. That God is wanting to do a new thing. And maybe we'll still have some of those labels, but those labels will matter a whole lot less than they do now. I think that may be one of the good things about our own struggles as a denomination. And so, what we can begin to do is to dare to hope. Again, that's the theme of this Sunday. We can begin to live the future. We can be a hopeful church, not a church that knows what the future holds, but knows the God who knows the future. Yeah, I do think he has something up his sleeve. And maybe these are birth pangs, and I don't know how long the labor is going to last. Hopefully not three or four generations. But whenever it happens, it's going to happen. It's always happened. There have been times of upheaval before. Faith, hope, and love, these three abide, says Paul. And the greatest of these is love. So yeah, we can be loving our neighbor even as we have hope for what God is going to do and for our part in it. A great example of this for me is uh, Pope Francis. When he came into the church as a pope, it was in a very sorry state. And I think, I think most of us would just see it as mission impossible. He probably thought that himself, but he believed in a God of the impossible. I've done some reading about his, uh, his papacy, and he would be the first to say that he's made mistakes. He's not a perfect man. He doesn't even pretend to be a perfect man but he he has believed in what God wants to do. And he's very slowly listened and taken steps to move the church in that direction. And he's hopeful even now and encourages us to have hope. Just yesterday, this is what he said. This is a moment to dream big, to rethink our priorities, what we value, what we want, what we seek, and to commit our acts in our daily life or to base our acts, our actions in our daily lives, on what we have dreamed of. So don't wait for the future. Just don't hope for what you hope will be. Live it. Live the future now. That's always been the call of the church: to live God's coming kingdom. He is coming back, and to live it now. We don't have to wait. And so this may be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that we're given time of preparing for what's next pondering the mystery of the incarnation including Christ being in us someone we carry wherever we live work play and learn and also especially paying attention to the to the to the person that's that's outside the circle the person that's being left out who's isolating the person in the margins living the Magnificat and finally Being hopeful. I think it's always been the call of the church. It's to be hopeful, even in times of despair. Well, let's pray together. Lord, I I thank you for this word, the call in it, the the sort of uh, calling to account. And I'm sorry for the times when I have been despairing when I've let my disappointment cloud my vision and and blind me to what you're already doing, would you help all of us become, be people of hope? Thank you that your love sometimes gets angry because you care. And when you get angry, you're about to do something new. And we pray for each other in our suffering. It's a part of how we love our neighbor. And so we pray for Alan. We pray for his healing. For Wayne. For his healing. We pray for Laura Huggett's father. For his healing, that broken femur. And Lord, we pray for Nikki and Michael and Crystal and Jay, the family that we've adopted to, uh, to share Christmas gifts with. Um, the health issues, the job issues. We thank you for that family, your love for them, and would you bless them. Thank you for the heifer project. And Lord, we wonder what animal it is that we will be purchasing for our neighbors. And Lord, we want to pray for all those affected by this pandemic, including people in our community. We pray for those in nursing homes who are, again, having to be so isolated and for those who work in those spaces and the risks that they take. So many, Lord, putting their lives even at risk because of the important and essential services that they perform. And Lord, heal our land. Heal the land of all the nations. And now, Lord, we pray the prayer that you taught us so that these things might be fulfilled. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.